the scripture we are going to go over today is a profound grace. We find in Paul's pastoral epistles, which are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, qualifications for those who seek the noble aspiration of overseer. We must understand that each qualification is that of a grace, a gift given from God to allow the church of God to succeed within a world where the devil seeks to destroy the church. But it is the devil who, in effect, will be plundered by the success of the Son of the living God. That's why it's a means of grace. Through adherence to his word, namely how the church ought to function. Matthew 16, 18 states this. Here's the word of God. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock as in Christ, right? Hence Paul tells Timothy, you may wage the good warfare, holding fast or holding faith and a good conscience. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. For destruction of the church most often, often happens from within, and the warnings we see in Scripture point out the fact that we must not only be, be aware of false teachers and ravenous wolves who seek to undermine the work of Christ, but we should expect to see them try to creep into the church. These are, as Jude states, hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude doesn't hold back on false teachers. He says these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So these false teachers are unqualified men. They look to devour the sheep, to turn them away from the truth in order to seek out falsehood. They are the shepherds who, like it says in Jude, feed themselves. And as Paul puts it, super apostles, those who seek to destroy God's church by ultimately leading the sheep after a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit than what we have been shown in God's word. Paul shows us that in 2 Corinthians 11. Therefore, the aging Paul, we are told in 1 Timothy 1.3, wrote this letter to Timothy. That's why the name of the epistle is Timothy. He was a protege of Paul's who was most likely converted during Paul's first missionary journey in Lystra. You can read Acts 14 if you want to know more about that. Who then joined Paul, which we're told in Acts 16, on his second, third, and fourth missionary journey all around the Mediterranean. After that, Paul charged Timothy to stay at the church in Ephesus. And I quote, it states this in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart in a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. We can find that those who seek 
to be teachers yet do not fit within the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3 will in fact do the following. We're told here in Timothy, it says, they will teach different doctrines rather than the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They'll promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And they will speak about things without understanding, understanding, wandering away from truth in vain discussions. So the charge of the overseer is to, as 1 Timothy 1.5 states, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart in a good conscience in a sincere faith. And this task, when overseeing the house of God, is not something that should be taken lightly. For the heart of any overseer should be the heart of Christ, which Paul beautifully explains in Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Paul states this. This is his heart as a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages in all generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ, in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That is the duty and job of a minister of Christ. That is the heart of the minister of Christ. So let the listener understand, when we speak of the qualifications of overseer, we are speaking of the qualifications for a leader who ought, through suffering, be able to wage the good war against the works of the devil in good conscience by making the word of God known to the people of God to present the people to God Mature in the faith. The life of the under-shepherd, the overseer, is to point to Jesus Christ, the good and perfect shepherd, not to point to themselves. Never, should never be. The overseer is no better than anyone in this room. His calling is just different than your calling. His calling is to a life of service and suffering with a good conscience that stems from love to present God's people mature in the faith, again, to wage the good war. And that is why James states this in James 3.1. James states, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And this is echoed in Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those will have to give an account The overseer has to give an account to God for your soul. And all of you know that in a little more than a month, the pastors from Arizona in our own beloved Wade Orsini will be, by God's grace, laying hands on me for the pastorate. So far be it for me to be a waterless cloud or a shepherd who feasts off the flock, for the gloomy darkness of hell will be reserved for me forever, fittingly. That's true. This is the calling to which I have aspired, in the judgment of which I have aspired, and as God's people, we have been given the grace to have qualifications that protect the sheep from unqualified men from obtaining the title of overseer. To this end, I submit myself to my pastors and to the people of God to a life of service and suffering to the glory of God's people. In love with a good conscience, 
to devout myself to waging the good war to present you mature in Christ by making the good shepherd known. It's my duty. So let's dig into now the beautiful grace of God, which are the qualifications of the overseer laid out in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Go ahead and open your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Here are the words of the living and true God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us protections as a church body. I pray, Lord, that our hearts are prepared for the reality and fact that you love us so much. Father, not only did you give your son to die for us, to justify us, declare us righteous before you, but you gave us your spirit in which we can hear and understand your word, but you also gave us your word, Lord, the sole infallible rule of faith in practice that will train us up, rebuke us, but equip us for every single good work. And this here, Lord, is a gift to the church so that we can operate and run in such a way that you want it to run, Christ. So help me, Lord, to speak clearly. Help your people to be edified. Please get me out of the way today, Lord, so that your word reigns supreme. In Jesus' name, amen. So we find in this section of scripture a whole list of positive qualities for the overseer, right? We read some of them. Husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. But I want you to understand that these qualifications, they're not a checklist, right? They're not just a checklist. You don't just do these things and you meet the qualifications. All men ought to seek to emulate these qualifications for they're linked to our union with Christ and sanctification. Every Christian ought to want to emulate these. For the overseer, there must be more than just meeting these qualifications. We'll get into that. But I like to break up these qualities of character into three distinct categories just to help my mind wrap around the list. So first, every single one of these qualifications falls under being above reproach. All right, you must be above reproach in each one of these qualifications. But I like to break it up with the positive qualifications, husband of one wife, hospitable, right? And then the protective qualifications, like not a drunkard, protective for the church, for the individual. And then the exponential qualifications, which are the qualifications that go out to the innumerable blessings to the church when these things are followed. But again, every single qualification is under the heading of above reproach. In the first group of positive qualifications, we have the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. In the second group, we have able to teach, 
not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And then in the third group, for the exponential qualifications, we have he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Must not be a recent convert, he must be thought of well by outsiders. In each qualification here, guys, they're not suspended into thin air by themselves. They all have purpose and they're linked to the exponential growth of God's people through the sufferings of a man in character. And that character is exposed by God. I just want you to have a way to categorize these qualifications. Just hold on to that as we go through the text. So going into the first verse, we have it here. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's the first verse. We find in the Greek that Paul is shaping that what he is about to say is reliable, trustworthy, reliable. The phrase here is pistos halagos. In translated, we say the saying, the words are trustworthy, pistos. You might hear that as familiar as faith, with faith. You can have faith in these words, faith in the saying that is, he is about to give us. So it's not just reliable. Like that wouldn't even just give it the depth of character that we have. But in terms of the heaviness of these qualifications, one can have faith in what is going to be said here. Trust in what is about to be said, Timothy. That's what Paul is saying. And this is for the success of the church in all reality. And just a quick side note, there's five different times when Paul uses the phrase pistos halagos. Each one is in the pastoral epistles. This is as trustworthy saying is used three times in 1 Timothy. It's in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. In 1 Timothy 3, 1. 1 Timothy 4, 8 through 10. One time in 2 Timothy in chapter 2, 11 through 13. And one time in Titus 3, 1 through 8. So five times total in the pastoral epistles. And I believe, just being very candid, that every time Paul uses this phrase, it creates humility in the one who is reading the letter. It ought to create humility. A reminder of what their duty is to the people of God. Like, remember this, Timothy. Remember this, Titus. Whoever's reading the epistle, remember this. And here is the saying, right? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's continuing on in verse 1. The word aspiring here in the Greek is aregetai. In its literal use, it means the stretching of oneself. But in this text, it's referring to aspiring toward a specific goal. And the goal in question is that of the overseer. And in the Greek, that would be the word episkopos. But I want to sit on that word for a minute. There's another word used in the Bible that describes the type of leader in the church. And what word is that? Well, we in English can hear the word elder, right? Or bishop. And the word in the Greek would be presbyteros. We find that in Titus 1.5. But I want to talk about that just for a second because the, the qualifications for presbyteros, uh, elder, are the exact same qualifications for that as an overseer. So the words are synonymous, right? They're synonyms. They mean the same thing. So an elder is an overseer. An overseer is an elder, right? They don't have two different functions. Their functions are one and the same in the Bible. They're interchangeable titles. And that's extremely important because there's a point in the early church where people actually got confused about that and they would have different roles. But according to the Bible, they have the same function. So we find that there's a specific office within the church that is being described 
and that there's an aspiration that must occur within an, within an individual. Uh, within the modern terms, you'd hear it as the internal calling. Someone would come up to, say, Pastor Wade or myself, and they'd be like, I have an internal calling, I believe, to be a pastor. We would say that that is an aspiration, right? And Paul states that that aspiration is a noble task, right? Verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Understand that in the Greek, the word we translate to task is ergo, which is the root form, or which the root form of that word is ergon, meaning work. So it's a noble work. So the aspiration, the desire to be an overseer is a work. It consists of work, but not only that, it consists of noble work. And the word noble comes from the Greek word kalu, which connotates a good or morally excellent thing in terms of an ethical sense. So this aspiration for the office of overseer is good, but it's also a tremendous undertaking. I know when I was first reading this section of scripture, I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's a noble task. That's a great thing to want to aspire to be an overseer. Well, what Paul is really saying is that the, it's an extremely difficult task to do, right? Very hard. Because the office of the overseer, elder slash pastor, is one who wages the good war, right? A leader in battle who is called to suffer in love for the people of God to bring them to Christ, mature in the faith, he will have to give an account for how he shepherds God's people, and he ought to do it with moral excellence. That's why it is a noble task. And the work of the overseer ought to be exemplified by humility, making Jesus Christ the focal point, the rock on whom the success of the church thrives, to be the point in which the faith of the flock he shepherds for Christ is pointed to Christ. So understand, these qualifications that we're looking at are qualifications of uh, the character of Jesus, right? This is something that the, the typical person, the sinful person, the carnal person cannot do, cannot do. This is a grace from God. The internal calling that one has, this aspiration is beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. It's noble, but it's a great and morally excellent work. Therefore, an excellent requ work requires extraordinary sacrifice. That's the reality. That's what Paul is setting us up for. It's a tremendous task. So paraphrasing the verse here, let's think of it like this. The saying is trustworthy. The internal calling to the office of overseer is a tremendous task in the eyes of the Lord, a good task, but one of selflessness, a life of hard work. And that's the reality, right? Because there's no greater love than the one who lays his life down for his friends. And that must be the heart of a pastor, which can only occur when the overseer meets the qualifications, humbly submissive to Christ, purely a work of the Spirit of God. So what is that work? What's the ergon, right? The ergo, the, the task of a pastor. Here's some examples that the overseers to do for the church of God. This is taken from Alexander Strauch's book, uh, Biblical Eldership. I recommend that book to anyone who's wondering about it. And it's by no means, this is by no means an exhaustive example of what a pastor does. But one, they protect the flock by being spiritually alert and courageous. In Acts 20, Paul states that wolves will come in among you, telling the leaders in Ephesus to be alert and on guard, and to quell false teaching and to run the wolves out of the con congregation. The overseer must be able, as Titus states, to be able to refute those who contradict sound doctrine, 
Courage must be exemplified in the work of the overseer, for it takes courage to stand up to predators of the flock, but also to correct the sheep and to fix fighting between the sheep. Furthermore, for the overseer to be courageous, he must be spiritually alert in prayer and on the lookout for these things. They must be watchful and and prayerful for the flock of God. And in that, they also must feed the flock. Here we find one of the most important tasks for the overseer, to teach the blood-bought people of Christ. This is the third listed gift to the church in Corinth after apostle and prophet. This task is monumental and exists throughout the duration of the ministry of the overseer. Remember Paul's heart from Colossians 1? What was it? To make the word of God fully known? To reveal the mystery hidden throughout the generations but now revealed to his saints? Teaching everyone with all wisdom that he will present them mature in Christ? The word of God is a fountain of living water, and the people of God need the water of life contained in God's word. This task to rightly divide the word of truth and teach God's people is a work of the utmost importance and that of a gift that God gives. It's a grace to the church. It's exemplified in the work of the overseer. To feed the flock is to give them the word of God. The first sign of a bad pastor is one that does not feed his flock. That's from Ezekiel 34.2. You can look that up later. That's God's condemnation of bad shepherds. And we found that in Jude 12, right? They feed themselves, not the flock. The pastor also leads the flock with management skill and hard work. 1 Peter 5 states that elder shepherds, elders shepherd the flock of God. But what does that mean? Well, he leads, governs, manages, and cares for the flock. This requires hard work and management skill, constantly solving problems and providing oversight to the household of God. The man of God must commit himself to hard work, to killing the sin of idleness by pursuing in love the kingdom of God. The life of a pastor is a life devoted to work, noble ergon, right? Kalus ergon, morally excellent work. There can be so much more that could be said here with regards to management skill, but for time's sake, let's resume. One of the last things we'll look at for an example is care for the practical needs of the flock with a love for God's people, right? The overseer is called to care for the flock. They visit the sick and they pray over them. They counsel people, couples. They strengthen the weak, care for the widow and the poor, pray for people. These are day-to-day spiritual needs of the church body, but all this is done with a self-sacrificial love for the church body, right? A love for people. To exemplify the traits of Jesus Christ's union with the church, where he gave himself up for her to present her holy and blameless. Like, really think about that. That's not an easy task. That's why the judgment is so strong. That's why James warns those who want to be teachers. Again, this is not an exhaustive list of the noble work of the pastor, but really it's the groundwork to really help us understand the qualifications that we're about to go over why they are necessary and trustworthy for the moral qualities of the overseer. This is not a checklist again, but a spirit-wrought aspiration that is externally observable qualities, right? So we're about to get into the meat of the potatoes of the lesson, but let it be known that every single qualification here is hinged on the perfect obedience and nature of Christ. This means that Jesus Christ is our example of the perfect good shepherd. These qualifications can find their utmost perfection in the life of Jesus Christ and his ministry on earth. Without Christ, these qualifications would be meaningless. It's true. Now looking at verse 2, we see the the famous words, therefore, 
the conjunction that helps us understand the following, right? So, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, since it's a morally excellent work, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Remember, on this rock, Christ has established his church. Would it not make sense that the qualifications of the overseer must mimic the morally excellent qualifications of Jesus Christ? They must. This is not to say that the overseer perfectly upholds each requirement, right? No one is sinless. No man is perfect but God. However, close evaluation of the one aspiring should show a track record of consistently meeting these requirements. They should be taken seriously and met consistently. Herein lies the whole list, okay? Above reproach, blameless. That's the overarching qualification. It encompasses the meaning that the overseer is the one without spiritual blight of character. One who is without reproach does not take the name of the Lord in vain when they stand in the pulpit and preach to God's people and counsel to God's people. Think of it kind of like this. Blameless does not equate to sinless. But what it does mean is the overseer is the example to the body of Christ of how to walk in the newness of life. In that profession of faith, he must be blameless. So think about it like this. Colossians 1.22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above, above reproach before him. That's all of our calling, right? And Jesus Christ does that. In that sense, we are blameless. However, when we're walking in the newness of life, none of us do that perfectly. But when you're above reproach, as an example to the rest of the congregation, the pastor ought to be that person who's above reproach so people can look to him for help on how to walk in the newness of life. So the overseer, he leads by example. In his example of the Christian faith, he must be above reproach. For Christ calls all believers to be above reproach. Therefore, the leader in the church ought to live a life worthy of the example of Christ. Understand that the world is watching. There are, they are critical and always waiting for the failure of the pastor, right? The world always is. The pastor must lead an irreproachable life by exhibiting the following Christly qualifications. So let's get into the first one. They must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, there's been wide debate about what exactly the husband of one wife means, some have taken this to mean that the elder must be married, like has to actually be married. Some take it that the elder must not be in a polygamous marriage. Some believe that elders may only marry once. And then some take it as elders must be maritally and sexually above reproach. So I'm going to dive into each view quickly. I don't want to get hung up here, but I just want to give us an understanding. So to state that elders must be married is to neglect the fact that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 states that a single man would be undivided in his efforts for the kingdom of God. Also, the phrase used in 1 Timothy is one woman man. Mice one gynecos, wife woman, andra, husband man. That's what it states. It doesn't say an elder must be a man who has a wife. Quite simply. So, if they are married, they must be a one woman man. The man, here's the second thought. The man must not be in a polygamous marriage. This is true. However, this is not exactly what Paul is speaking about. And also during this time in history, polygamy was not something that was popular, even with the Greeks, believe it or not. 
Polygamy would have been something that is taboo. Now, a one-wife husband would definitely not have multiple wives, which would disqualify him from the pastorate, but that's not the interpretation that, that Paul is trying to get out here. There's a heart of what Paul is try, trying to truly show. Let's go into the third interpretation. It states that the elder can only be married once. However, using this logic would disqualify an elder who is remarried after being a widower, right? After his own wife dies, and if he gets remarried. Not only that, it raises a bunch of issues when thinking about the biblical teaching of divorce and remarriage, not to mention whether or not these divorces occurred prior to the conversion in the man's life. Every situation must be looked at and scrutinized through prayer, but this black and white interpretation also misses the heart of the text, which is the overlying emphasis to be above reproach in character, walking in the newness of life. So this leads us to the most consistent biblical interpretation of the passage, which is the elder must be in a committed, monogamous relationship with his wife, and through his marriage be an example to the Christian body of a marriage that is above reproach. And we'll get into what that even looks like. So in terms of the mystery of Christ as the bridegroom to his bride, which is the body of Christ, let us look to Jesus as the perfect example of a faithful, monogamous relationship. If you want, you can go here to Ephesians 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, to verses 25 through 33. This is what it looks like to be above reproach as a husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband, right? A faithful, monogamous relationship with, her wife, with your wife, to wash her with the word, to love your wife as Christ loves the church. He gave himself up, right? He sacrificed himself for his people. To live a life above reproach to your wife is to mimic Christ in his relationship to the church. Wash her in the word. Present her holy and blameless before God. To devote your life to such a thing. That's what it means. And that right there, that's the perfect example of a one-wife-husband relationship. And an elder must be living a life in which this qualification is being exhibited. Let's continue on to the next qualification. Sober-minded and self-controlled. And we're going to kind of look at those two requirements together because they play off one another. But let's first look at sober-minded, for this leads into self-controlled. The Greek word used here for sober-minded is uh, nephalios, which can be referenced to a person who is clear-headed, with balanced judgment, they're free from rash behavior, they're self-restrained, right? So a sober-minded individual is someone who is a self-governing individual. Number one, in order to be a truly self-governing individual, you must be spiritually regenerated, not enslaved to sin. You must be set free by the blood of Jesus Christ in order to even think straight. But to continue to think straight, you must be in the word of God to renew your mind daily. 
Remember, under the heading of above reproach in the life of a believer, they're walking in the newness of life. A person who is sober-minded is a person who, despite all of life's curveballs, stresses, ups and downs, is a heavenly-minded individual whose eternal focus is that on God, having the grace of Christ ultimately on our minds. In Paul David Tripp, he's a pastor, he states this, a sober mind is someone who lives with eternity in view. Someone who lives with eternity in view. And what it means to be sober-minded is this, it's, it's to have a mind that is renewed by the word of God, in which we are told by God that all things happen for a purpose, right? God then states in that purpose, it's for our good and for his glory. So we have a hope that is unseen. Here's some promises of God. We have a hope that's unseen, an inheritance undefiled. A sober-minded individual will stay focused, clear-headed, and above reproach when living a life with a sober mind. So no matter what is happening or going their way, whatever life's curveballs are, they say it's happening for my, my good to the glory of God. I'm going to look at this objectively through God's word, having a, a, a renewed mind and using that as my basis of judgment. That's how you live a sober mind in a world full of confusion. Okay? It's to not be run amok with your own feelings, but to be in submission to God and his word. Hold on to that. To be in submission to God and his word. So when looking at Christ, Christ was the perfectly sober-minded man. He had eternity in focus with everything that he did. I'll give you an example. When the devil tempted Christ in the wilderness, Christ in his humanity, without food or drink, right, what would seem to be a situation in which the flesh uh, was without every form of security to withstand the schemes of the devil, he was able to be sober-minded with eternity in focus, in submission, in trust to the will of the Father. In that, he rebuked the crafty serpent who offered him what? The serpent offered him the world, a world in which he didn't have to do what? Suffer and die for God's people. But what did he do? Again, he rebuked the devil with the word of God, keeping a sober mind because he was in submission to the will of the father. Likewise, the overseer must do the same. Let's think about Adam and Eve in the garden now. Jesus Many, many days without food and water. Miracle, right? Any mere man would have been dead. Again, he had no protections from the flesh. No protections. Adam and Eve in the garden, not a desert. Beautiful garden, had everything they need. They had full bellies. Adam was to lead and to guide. But when the temptation came, even with a full belly, even with full security to try to make the right decision in the flesh, he failed to the schemes of the devil. Why? Because he was not in submission to the will of God. Which brings us now to being self-controlled. The word used in the Greek is sophron, which is sim similar to uh, sober-minded, but it relates more to decision-making. So can you understand how someone who is sober-minded with eternity and focus in submission to God's word would be more able to exert self-control? A man who lives within God's reality is able to exhibit more self-control and common sense within any situation because God's word and trust in Christ gives the overseer, or any individual for that matter, an objective look to look at any situation free from emotional prejudice, right? Again, let us look to Christ as the perfect example 
of being sober-minded, exhibiting self-control. So here we have Matthew 26, 53. When Jesus is about to be, well, he's being arrested here. What does he say? He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? And then in 1 Peter 2, 23, we're told this about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. So thinking about Jesus being sober-minded and exhibiting self-control, upon the arrest of Jesus, he was truly above reproach. He did nothing wrong. He didn't deserve to be arrested. He was impeccable, right? He was blameless. In one minute, if he wanted to, he could have called down legions of angels to rescue him. But instead, he exhibited self-control. He didn't have to. He'd be the one in which he, did, he would be just to do whatever he wanted to do in that situation, being God. But instead, he, he submits himself to the will of the Father, keeps a sober mind, exhibits self-control, and also corrects them and says, no, I still have authority over you. To the crucifixion of Christ, where he as Peter shows, was above reproach and exhibited self-control because he had a sober mind. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten the sinful people that were killing him on the cross. But he continued entrusting himself to he who judges rightly. So an overseer must exhibit the same level of continuity in his mental and spiritual life with God. He must, no matter what comes his way, be in submission to the one who always judges justly in order to exhibit a sober and self-controlled mind that is being above reproach. Are you able to see it, right? Like, the overseer is the example to the congregation of how to walk in the newness of life. To be above reproach as a blood-bought believer leading the flock Christ has entrusted him through the good war of life. This is how God is successfully bringing the kingdom of heaven upon earth. The church is a means of grace in our daily lives, and oh, how beautiful it is to be part of the local body of Christ. How can us, who, you know, if we're not in submission to uh, a local church body, walk successfully in the newness of life when we do not have an, a shepherd? We just have a sheep that's just wandering around. We don't have the example. What does it say in Proverbs 16, 32? Better a patient person than a warrior one with self-control, than one who takes a city. It's a beautiful proverb. Leading on now, we're going to look at the next qualification here, which is respectable. So we already had here, let's see, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, now respectable. Let's, let's continue to plod through this amazing section of Scripture. The Greek word for uh, respectable here is kosmios, and it's associated with the word used for self-control, but the meaning is more, it more or less conveys uh, outward virtue that causes a person to be respected by others. So how can an overseer be a leader of others if he's not respected, right? Respect here is gained by virtue through traits being exhibited rather than manipulation and domination. It's the beautiful thing. Understand that respect is born from being above reproach. It is a fruit obtained spiritually. It is not done by domination, manipulation, or fear over the flock. 
The pastor ought not lord over his sheep. There's that warning in 1 Peter 5.3. It says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So when we think about being respectable, that's something that naturally happens when somebody is sober-minded and exhibiting self-control within the congregation. You're going to respect somebody like that who's not... uh, you know, hot-tempered or, you know, getting flustered with every little thing that comes their way. I mean, naturally, that's the way it works. We respect by virtue. Furthermore, let's continue on. The qualifications is that they should be hospitable. We find Paul stating that the overseer must be hospitable. This is often one of the most overlooked qualifications However, the overseer, as an example to his flock, must exemplify one of the most important aspects of Christian ministry, which is hospitality. We're told in Romans 12, 13, 1 Peter 4, 9, and Hebrews 13, 2, that we are to be hospitable without complaint and not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Understand that when we think of Jesus, he was hospitable to the utmost extent. And you may say, maybe thinking, well, Jesus didn't even have a home, right? He tells us that. Foxes even has holes. I don't even have a place to lay my head. How could Jesus have been hospitable? Well, let me tell you this. Jesus owns the universe. Christ is hospitable for the fact that he gives sinners life when they don't deserve it. Christ is hospitable because Jesus allows our entrance into heaven by the sacrifice of his blood. Jesus is hospitable because we are now co-heirs with Christ, united to the sonship by adoption into his family. Ought we not to extend hospitality to those around us? In reality, to the ministry of Jesus, his ministry was a ministry of hospitality, and it continues to be forevermore. He welcomes me into his father's house because he died for me to be able to go there. That's the definition of hospitable. He's like, not only do I give you the shirt off my back, but I give you the blood to cover your sins. The Christian ought to be hospitable to the pagan and to the brother in Christ alike, for we have been extended a hospitality greater than one we could ever imagine. Therefore, the overseer ought to emulate this in his character towards his neighbor and flock. Alexander Straunch, from his book again, he states this, those who love hospitality, love people, and are concerned about them. If the local church's leaders are inhospitable, the local church will also be inhospitable and indifferent towards the needs of others. Now let us summarize before we continue to the next set of qualifications, which are inherently linked to the positive character qualifications we just went over, which are now to protect the elder in the congregation, from which we'll just speak in a minute. So let me read the verse, and then let's go ahead and let's summarize that here, the the two verses. The saying is trustworthy, right? Have faith in these words. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. So an overseer must be above reproach, walking in the newness of life as a blood-bought believer, an exemplary example of a follower united and in submission to Christ. He must love his wife as Christ loves the church. He must be eternally minded in submission to God's word and trust in the sovereignty of God, allowing him to be sober-minded and self-controlled in all situations, leading leading respect from others from the virtue of Christian character. He must be hospitable towards those in the local body and those outside the body 
mimicking the ministry of uh, hospita- hosp- being hospitable that Christ has extended in his mercy to all people, mimicking that from Christ. Again, that's just a summary of what we just went through, but we're going to continue because Paul now lays out a qualification that is truly unique and different than every other qualification that's listed here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. That's the ability to teach. All right, able to teach. So this is a qualification that not everyone is able to receive. Not everyone's able to receive this. For the ability to effectively communicate the meaning of Scripture is a spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. All men ought to desire the spiritual gift of teaching. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that, but it does not mean that all men receive it. In fact, this qualification is actually one qualification that differentiates the office of the overseer from that of a deacon. You can read that further on on your own in 1 Timothy 3. Right after the set of qualifications for the, the overseer, it goes into the qualifications for a deacon. Understand that Christianity, right, it's a religion that is bound by the scriptures. It's, we go through God's word. We follow God's word. God has given us wisdom, knowledge, literally everything we need in his word to train us and equip us for every good work. And it's the work of an overseer to be able to feed the congregation with the word of God. Don't get me wrong, Christians can read and understand the scriptures through the Holy Spirit, and they ought to read and be transformed by the power of God in the scriptures, but the gift of teaching allows the person to effectively communicate the content of the written word to others so that the flock can be fed by the word of God. Inasmuch, which we went through earlier in the job of a pastor, the ability to teach comes also with the ability to discern error to correct and rebuke false teaching through the teaching of the written word. Titus 1.9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul, as stated earlier in Colossians, what did he do? He sought to make the mystery of Christ fully known through the word of God to all so that they may stand mature in Christ And that is the gift from the Holy Spirit. He makes the mysteries of Christ known through the written word to others so that they can stand mature in Christ. For no one can search the depths of God except God himself. And now, we continue to the rest of the protective set of qualifications. Remember, being above reproach is walking in the newness of life to the extent that the overseer can be an example to others. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, husband of one wife, these qualifications and moral characters lead to the following. They lead to the following. Verse three, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So we've got to understand that an overseer is going to be placed within many different situations as an individual who, of course, is trying to help others overcome various things, right? Various forms of idolatry from, let's say, uh, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, anger outbursts, um, other types of issues, right? When they're counseling the sin of the flock, therefore, he must, not, he, he must be sober-minded when he's actually doing that counseling, right? Exhibiting self-control by not being a drunkard, by not being violent, but instead gentle, by not being quarrelsome, and by not being a lover of money, So would a person who is a drunkard be a sober-minded individual who exhibits self-control? No. No. If you're not sober-minded and have self-control, you can be a drunkard. You can be prone to it. 
This qualification does not mean an overseer cannot drink wine or alcohol by any means, but it means that they must be above reproach when consuming alcohol because drunkenness is a sin of the most severe magnitude because it destroys lives, marriages, families, and the like. They can, you can be sober-minded and above reproach and have some alcohol. Furthermore, an overseer must, be vi- must not be violent, but instead gentle. The Greek word for violent here is pleso, and its root form means to strike. In this sense, it is a person who is a, a bully, one who is irritable and out of control. We can see that these negative qualities are a further dive into what would be shown if a person is not sober-minded and self-controlled. Upon examining of the one who aspires to be an overseer, if they are drunkards and if they are quick to anger, irritable and violent, they are not sober-minded or self-controlled. That's the point that Paul is making here. In this, we find another positive quality listed in stark contrast to being violent, and that is gentle, right? Instead of being violent, they ought to be gentle. And right here, this trait is one of the most profound fruits of a sober-minded and self-controlled individual. It's one of the most important traits for an overseer as well, because it's a trait that's so closely related to Jesus and his earthly ministry and how God deals with his people. When I think of this trait, Uh, doing the research on this, I was thinking of Psalm 103. This is in terms of thinking of gentleness, how God deals with us gently. Uh, Psalm 103, verses 10 through 14 state this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The gentle overseer shows forbearance, patience, meekness, understanding, and graciousness because he understands the human condition, right? And he seeks to help people become mature in Christ, understanding that he himself will have to give an account of their souls to the good shepherd. 2 Corinthians 10.1 states, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Christ is the perfect example of meekness and gentleness. So God, he, he will protect his sheep, and the under-shepherd is called to be gentle and meek. God will not be mocked, and any pastor who is violent and quarrelsome to the sheep will answer to Jesus. That's a reality. The church of God exists inside the parameters of forgiveness and forbearance. Without forgiveness and forbearance, you guys, we would not be here. We wouldn't be here. Therefore, the overseer must be gentle and show forbearance as well to the flock of God. Now, continuing on, standing in stark contrast to gentleness is also quarrelsome must not be quarrelsome. Like violence, being quarrelsome is the opposite of being peaceful. Jesus states, blessed are the peacemakers. And when we think about the beginning, when Cain killed Abel, what has plagued mankind ever since, right? A quarreling and violent heart, selfishness, jealousy, rage, bitterness, malice, envy, strife. This stems not from a sober mind and a self-controlled spirit, but instead a haughty and selfish spirit. A quarrelsome person, according to Proverbs 6, is one who stirs up strife between brothers, and the Bible states that God hates it in Proverbs 6. 
Therefore, a gentle, sober-minded, and self-controlled overseer is a protection for the church. Through the local overseer, Christ allows the flock to see how conflict ought to be handled in a peaceful, God-glorifying, gentle way through their above-reproach leadership, right? A gentle overseer is someone who can help people overcome their sins through the word of God instead of an unqualified leader who only magnifies the sins of his flock and brings reproach against God. They got to be gentle. But gentle, don't be confused. Don't confuse that with weak because remember, the pastor has to protect the flock. Gentleness is not weakness. Titus 3.2 states, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And that section of Titus and 3.2 are part of the qualifications for uh, a presbyteros, right? The other word used synonymously to, sh to show overseer, elder. So can you see now how these qualifications are a means of grace for God's people? So if more churches implemented examination of men through seeing the fruit throughout their lives for years, by measuring them up against these qualifications, would we not see that the modern church would have less, few, way less issues than it has today? I mean, you can go online and you can look for, oh, just do any search if you want, like uh, job positions for the pastorate. You're just filling out job applications. Is this a job application? What it says in God's word? No, these are qualifications that should take years. By not observing God's grace in these qualifications, we as the modern church at large have widely profaned the name of God to the world. We really have. We must submit to God's word and learn from our mistakes. Remember that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because its success is predicated on the success of Christ, and Christ is already successful. It's his grace in which we have the means as the church to storm the gates of hell. And one way to do that is to have qualified leadership within the church. And that's why it's not surprising that the next qualification is listed here. They must not be a lover of money. Who is a lover of money in scripture that you can think of? I bet you the first thing that comes to your head was Judas, right? Judas was a lover of of money and betrayed the Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. The Pharisees, it said, devoured the widow's houses. The religious leaders of Jesus' day turned the temple grounds into a place where money was to be turned for a profit. The love of money is one chief identifier of a false teacher, for they are only in the ministry for personal gain, right? The shepherd who feeds themselves denies the word of God, teaches false doctrine, then takes their money and gives it to himself. In examples here, we have Judas, one of the disciples, the Pharisees, leader of the church in that time, right? These are all religious leaders that were lovers of money. What does it say in Matthew 6, verse 24? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't. Furthermore, in, furthermore, in 1 Timothy 6, 10, it states this, For the love of money is root to all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's not money that's the root of all evil. What is it? The love of money is the root of all evil. You cannot serve two masters, and the fruit will be made known in the end. 
So an overseer must have respect for the funds that come into the church with a fear of God in order to successfully care for the church and love the people of the church. An overseer must be content in life also with what God has given them. Right? Hebrews, Hebrews 13.5 shows us that we as Christians ought to be content with what we have. For in Christ we have all that we need and he will never forsake us. Honestly, guys, I do recommend it if you look at that QR code on the back of the sheet that you have for our bulletins. Go through the studies that we did from Jeremiah Burroughs, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. I mean, it'll be a long, long set of videos for you to watch, but man, what a blessing it is. Contentment is, is truly an amazing thing. But the overseer in point ought to be content with God has given him, not a lover of money who takes from the people of God to feed himself and reject them. So being above reproach with money means that God is the chief love on the heart of the elder and not financial gain, not financial gain. But this does not mean that the pastor cannot made, make good use of the money that comes into the church. He ought to not put the church in any position that reprimands the name of God or brings dishonor. Instead, money that is used and distributed with oversight, with oversight, is of great benefit to the church of God, right? To help the widow, the destitute, those who are in need, in ways that the church government ought to operate and not the state in terms of handouts. So what, what I mean in that is that when we have unqualified leaders in churches and we have churches that do not operate how they ought to, according to scripture, people will be overlooked, the local needs of the body will be overlooked. And in history in the United States of America, we have seen that when the church is not operating how it should, the state will eventually take place of how the church should function, right? So the family in the church should be the ones, they have the authority given to them by God to help the homeless and those in need, the widow, the destitute, uh, the single mother, you name it. But when the family in the church fails, the state will look to any opportunity to go over their sphere of sovereignty and take what rightfully belongs to God through unjust taxes and other means. The, the state should never be the one who's paying uh, for the homeless, paying for the widow, paying for the single mother. That just brings in a vicious cycle, uh, which we can see today we're, we're in a big issue. But part of that issue, again, right here, stems from the church, right? The church is the, the local report card of the, the culture is the report card of the church. That's that famous saying, uh, I believe it's from R.C. Sproul Jr. Uh, it could have been from someone else, but he said it all the time. He said that, that the culture is the report card of the church. Take a look at it. How are we doing, right, in reality? So, the love of money in the church in many ways has led to governmental overreach with policies to help those in need that they should not have. That which the local church family should have been helping people locally so above reproach with money and qualified leadership can help put an end to that which is plaguing our nation. But let's summarize verses two through three. A man who is above reproach, who is sober-minded and self-controlled, trusting in God's word, will be one who loves God above all else. He will not be violent or a drunkard or quick to anger. They will not be looking for a fight, but they will be peacemakers, treating the flock with gentleness. But a man who is not sober-minded, who does not exhibit self-control, does not trust in God's word, is quick to anger, prone to being a drunkard, he is quarrelsome, and does not handle money well. Like the psalm states, you become the God that you worship. 
And the qualities of the overseer should mimic the virtues of Christ, in a nutshell. Now let's look at verses 4 through 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Verse 5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This qualification here is that of the utmost importance for how the individual acts when the public eye is not around is usually displayed in the way he treats his family. We also understand that there is no better mirror to ourselves than our own children. The overseer must be above reproach in his family and be an example to the rest of the congregation in his own family dealings. Again, this doesn't mean that the man must have children in order to be an elder. <laughs> Remember that one thought that he must be a, a one-man or a one-woman husband? <laughs> I don't know why I just butchered that in my head. Anyways, people will take even this section of scripture where it says they must have children that are being submissive to them, and they say, well, you can't be uh, an elder overseer if you don't have children. It's not what it's stating. But if you have children, they must be submissive to his leadership. The Greek word for manage here is proestimi, which means to lead or rule over. Understand that the overseer, he's a leader in the church. The way he leads the church will be a reflection of how he leads at home. It's the reality, right? A violent authoritarian father, authoritarian father will likely be a violent authoritarian pastor in which he would be ultimately unqualified for the position. For he must lead, as verse 4 states, with all dignity. And the meaning of dignity here is the quality of being worthy of esteem or respect, especially on account of one's behavior. So it shows that his children respect him. Like the church, by virtue, would respect a sober-minded, self-controlled man. Meaning the qualification of sober-minded and self-controlled is seen in the way the man treats his own family. A man must lead his home in such a way where his children are not provoked to anger, as Paul states in Ephesians 6, 5, but that they're brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A good father knows his children. He does not set them up to make them stumble, but instead with gentleness, understanding who they are and forbearance, he knows their weaknesses and helps them honor God by raising them up and not tearing them down. A good pastor should do the same. Remember, we are waging the good war. The father he must take time to sharpen his arrows to pierce the strongholds of the enemy. Understand that the archer, he must know the ins and outs of the wood and the stone that he is using to craft the arrow. This takes gentleness, time, and consideration for the materials at hand. Any violence or pugnacious attitude will only damage the arrow, dulling it, breaking it, making it useless for the kingdom, or the archer may even damage himself with the arrow. Thus the man of God should treat his children in like manner and in turn the household of God. This is how the overseer is to manage the household of God spiritually, but there's also the fact that the father, right, ought to provide shelter, housing, and fiscally. So the man manages his household. This is why Paul is so pointed when he states, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I mean, you can't argue with that. Like, and let's think about Jesus. How does Jesus manage his own household? Ephesians 1, 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 2, right? We have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ. We have access in one spirit to the Father through the self-sacrificial love of God. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence 
by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. We were dead, dirty sinners who have now been clothed in honor and glory, co-heirs with Christ. We were once dead, now living stones being built into a holy temple for the Lord. The household of Christ inherited the righteousness of Christ apart from any of their works. That's how Christ manages his household. The household of God is never left or forsaken. Therefore, the overseer of God ought to never leave or forsake the flock of God or his family. Instead, he should seek to make God known an example and through God's word to his family and to the congregation. Now let's look at our final verses here. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. We find two warnings here from Paul on how the devil seeks to bring disgrace to God's church. One, through a new convert. Two, through a man who is double-minded. Double-minded. There's nothing wrong with a new convert. We were all new converts once. Many of you are new converts right now. Again, there is nothing wrong with being a new convert. We actually praise God for the fact that you are now born again by the grace of God. But in reality, a new convert can be someone who is full of zeal, passion, and it can be infectious. It really is. But we must not mistake zeal for virtue. For Peter tells us that we must supplement our faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. A new convert, simply put, has had not enough time to grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. In Galatians, we're told that Paul took three years in the Arabian desert to learn and be with God prior to starting his apostolic ministry. Three years. This was the Apostle Paul. A new convert can become puffed up with conceit, not learning how to be sober-minded and exhibiting self-control if they're placed in this position of power before they ought to be. They need time in the Christian walk to create humility, long-suffering, and patience, whereas immediate authority and honor to the new convert can create prideful, a prideful and haughty heart. And that's why Paul prohibits new converts from becoming overseers. And then we also find in 1 Timothy 3.10 the following. It says, And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Right there is in the section for deacons, but them also also refers to the overseer. How can we give new converts time to be tested if we're just making them overseers quickly because of their zeal, knowledge, or their zeal and passion? It doesn't happen. It takes testing. It takes time. Personally, I've been with Apologia for seven years, uh, not stating that there's an exact number for how long it takes to be qualified for the pastorate. That's up to God and your elders, but the ind individual who aspires ought to exhibit patience when aspiring for the pastorate. Because one way to destroy the church is to give the title of overseer to a new convert. Therefore, Paul prohibits Timothy from doing just that in Ephesus. And it makes sense in Ephesus, a lot of people who were coming to Christ were pagan. They were pagan. Go read the book of Acts when uh, Ephesus is being converted. Go read the book of Ephesians. These were people uh, who were, it actually says they burned all of their occult books when they first came to Christ. Like there was a lot of stuff going on there. Many of them were pagans. So he's got to tell them, hey, these people might be coming to Christ. Give it time. Give it time. Secondly, a man who does not have a good reputation with outsiders or unbelievers is not qualified for the title of overseer. What does this mean? A good reputation with outsiders. I believe verse 8 helps us understand that. 
when we think of deacons. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued. That'll give us a good idea of what Paul is actually getting at. Not double-tongued, right? This is referring to a man who portrays himself as one way, externally, but lives another way, whether at home or with unbelievers, right? Externally, he portrays himself as a righteous man, but at home, he's beating his wife and he's hurting his children, right? How much would this profane the name of God? Unbelievers cursing God at the expense of a double-tongued man. This is the definition of a man who is living a double life, one who says one thing but doesn't do it. Not to mention the Bible portrays Satan as the one who seeks to take advantage of someone within their weakness. If the man who is aspiring to be an elder is aspiring to be an elder but instead lives a sinful life with unbelievers, the devil will use this to trap the man in sins that are detrimental to the individual and bring a bad name to God's church. What's interesting with the double-minded individual is that the new convert and the man with a bad reputation with outsiders are assumed here to be Christians in the text. But false teachers as well, we can understand and assume that many double-minded people as well are not. Both of these types of people the man with a bad reputation with outsiders and the new convert can be discipled, right? But they should never be the ones doing the discipleship. They should never be doing the, one, the ones doing the discipleship. <clears throat> Meaning that if we love our neighbor as people who are leaders, we would not allow them to be in a part of leadership because they will hurt themselves and others in, a proce- in the process. It's a grace from God that when these qualifications are followed, We are not ignorant to the devices of the devil and can wage the good war in love for the the congregation. Herein lies the qualifications for an overseer. If anyone aspires for such office, it is a noble task. And as Paul states, these qualifications are trustworthy. They are necessary for the growth of the church. But after all that, you may be thinking, what does this have to do with me, right? I don't want to be a pastor. I have no aspiration, no internal calling to the pastorate but I will respond, do you not aspire to be like Christ? Do you not aspire to be like Christ? Paul states it, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. The qualifications of the overseer are that of virtues that imitate Christ. Though you may not seek the pastorate, these qualifications have everything to do with you. One, the pastor ought to seek to emulate these qualifications because it's less of himself and more of Christ than, than you, may not want to seek the pastorate. You are the individual who ought to seek these virtues because it's less of yourself and more of Christ. Remember, your pastor is to be the example for you in terms of walking in the newness of life. You must walk in that newness too. You ought to, if your pastor is a qualified leader, submit to your leadership as they seek to help you walk in that newness of life by being open to correction and training in righteousness. Jesus says we have to be born again. We're learning to walk in the newness of life, and your pastor is one who will help you. The church of God does not exist inside a vacuum. The church of God does not exist behind a computer screen and internet services. The church of God exists with people who attend a local church who are under the oversight of a qualified elder in which we wage the good war locally and faithfully until we are with our Savior. That's reality. The application of these qualities is to understand that Christ set up his church to function in such a way where the Spirit of God works through individuals by the means of grace that he has provided. If you do not aspire the pastorate, that's fine. 
aspire to be like Christ. If you aspire to be like Christ, be committed to a local body of believers to grow in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior. These qualifications, they should humble us, right? Pastor or not. With open arms, we ought to read this section of scripture and see the beauty of Christ. He is not only above reproach, but praise God, he is impeccable, right? He is the highest standard, right? He is faultless, blameless, the spotless lamb who gave his life for us. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one whom Job states that the stars cry out in worship and reverence, the almighty prince of peace, the mighty God who spoke the universe into existence. He called it forth from nothing and made it so. Remember, it is this God who took on the form of a servant. It was him who was perfectly obedient to the law. Not you, not me, not any other man has, who has ever existed could, could do that. It was Jesus Christ alone whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. It was through his leadership being the good shepherd that not one of his sheep will be lost. It's a promise. And he will present his bride spotless before the Father on the day of judgment. His sacrifice, his faithfulness in which we with a heavenly mind, in which he with a heavenly mind was tempted in every way as we, but he was without sin. Without sin. And that justifies us before God. He has dealt well with the sons of men. He's been hospitable, gentle, patient, and kind, so much so that he allows for a time even those who curse his name to drink the water from the earth to take joy in the pleasures of the summer sun. He disciplines his people like a loving father. It is him in which we ought to seek to emulate our lives. It is in this that the pastor should stay humble. It is in this where we ought to all be humble. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, for the means of grace that you have given us a way to function in this world, not to just resist the schemes of the devil, Lord, but to actually storm the gates of hell. And you state that they will not stand against the truth. We love you, Lord. We thank you. I pray that our hearts uh, will stew on this, that we'll think about these qualifications as something we should all aspire to emulate. We should all want to be more like you, Jesus. You saved us so that we could walk in the newness of life. Let us do that. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.